You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to episode four of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Jennifer O'Sullivan about getting hired at a yoga studio. Jennifer has a ton of experience on both sides of the hiring process, so you'll definitely get some tips and insider insights on how to land a yoga studio teaching gig. However, we also ended up getting into some other hot topics like the evolution of the yoga studio business model, the differences between teaching in an urban and rural environment, and how important it is to find a good match for a yoga studio to teach at. Jennifer has been teaching in the Washington, D.C. area for more than a decade after completing her first training in 2004. She spent five years as a studio manager with hiring responsibilities, so she is very well positioned to talk about this topic. Jennifer's teaching is mostly influenced by Don and Amba Stapleton of the Nosara Institute and by Sarah, Sarah Powers, the creator of Insight Yoga. Jennifer is an endorsed Insight Yoga teacher and mentor in the Insight Yoga Institute. Her classes include slowly flowing strength building yang postures with floor-based yin postures, pranayama, and seated meditation. This podcast episode is a bit longer than my previous ones, and I wanted you to be aware of that before getting started. There was so much good stuff to talk about that we ended up losing track of time. So there was even more in our plan that we didn't end up being able to get to, but we'll include some of that in the show notes as a bonus. I hope that you enjoy this inside scoop on getting hired by a yoga studio and the behind the scenes perspective of what it takes to run a yoga studio in an urban area. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast and agreeing to share a little bit about your experience hiring yoga teachers and how yoga teachers can put their best foot forward. I would love to have you just begin with your experience. Help us understand how you got the knowledge that you have about this process. Sure. Well, first, let me thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a real treat. I love yoga and I love podcasts, so it's it's a good combo for me. Me too. Um, <laughs> I... Um, I've been teaching for nearly 15 years and I got very lucky and I, I got a job teaching at the studio where I first started practicing and where I did my training. And along the way, as the studio grew, some different managerial roles would come up. And I think probably because I had a corporate management experience, I got, I got hit up for a couple of these roles. So I started out managing the workshop coordination. So, you know, taking in inquiries about teaching workshops, going out and 
and hitting up teachers within our studio community or outside for specific topics that we wanted to bring in. This also involved coordinating all of the details around bringing in guest teachers, which is almost its own podcast. And then at one point, that same studio decided to open a second location. And so I was then tapped to be studio manager during that time or hiring manager to help bring on and process the inquiries from new teachers. So um, that's kind of when I got into more program management, looking at the schedule more closely and trying to help figure out what was a right fit for different parts of the schedule and who would be good in those different roles and in those different classes. And also starting to take in all of the inquiries from the outside, people who wanted to work there. I did that for a little while and I was trying to figure out how long I did the combination of these two jobs. And it was probably four or five years just doing that in addition to teaching all of my classes and my workshops and participating in our teacher training program. And then I gave all of that up to work on my own stuff. But then I had a friend of mine decide to open a studio and she hired me on for about 18 months as a consultant to help her do all of this ramping up work again, bring, you know, responding to the inquiries from teachers that uh, she was looking to hire at the studio and look at the schedule and get people on in the right spots and so forth. So I think all told, I did this for six or seven years. So you have uh, some experience on this topic from multiple different angles as a manager, as a teacher yourself, of course, and then as a consultant. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it all. (laughs) (laughs) Would you help us understand the marketplace, the yoga studio marketplace. And, you know, I know you're coming from a big, bigger city context, so we need to bear that in mind. And then also we'll talk about how the things that are important in a big city do, do cross over to the smaller, more rural areas. And then also the places where there might be some differences. Yeah. So So what's interesting about your question is that when I first got started, um, even though I live in a metropolitan area around D.C., uh, the yoga scene was a little bit behind some of the other bigger markets. So we're not we're not quite at the level of a New York or an L.A. or even a San Francisco. So I actually watched the transformation from being a kind of small town scene to a larger city scene. And that, that was kind of an interesting transition to observe. But I think some things hold true uh, across the board. And, and, and the main thing I want to share is that studio owners and their staff are really under a lot of pressures from a lot of different places. And I have a lot of sympathy for studio owners in particular because I think they wear a lot of hats and they're required to move from right brain to left brain and they're more nurturing warm side to a more business-minded analytical side back and forth all the time. And not everybody transitions easily between those two things. So I I have a lot of sympathy for the challenges that they face. Um, But the bigger context here is that over the past 15 years or so, the yoga scene and the marketplace within which we all work has really exploded. And I know we see this all over the place. And Because of that explosion, we're seeing some really predictable market forces come into play. So in the beginning, 
when our studio, where I started out at, was the only gig in town, you know, classes were really hopping. Um, people would show up to all of our workshops and, and everything seemed to be in, the, in that upward trajectory that, that you would feel in, a, in an emerging market. But then things have plateaued and now we're seeing the normal struggles and pressures of any business in any other industry starting to impact yoga studios. And I, I, I think we could have a whole podcast on that. So I don't want to go too deep into this area. So I've identified two areas where I think it's helpful for teachers to understand if they're going to operate in a studio model. The first one is that expenses are high for yoga, te- for yoga studios. And some yoga studio owners might actually be carrying loans, so business loans that they've used to build out the space. And so they've got that kind of pressure churning in the background of repaying a loan. But the primary expense, once you factor MindBody Online and, and utilities and some other incidentals, toilet paper and so forth, the primary one is rent. And for anybody who is unfamiliar with commercial rental markets, uh, commercial leases are negotiated in five-year increments, sometimes 10. Now, sometimes you can get a shorter lease or something atypical, but generally it's five to 10-year increments. And so somebody might put together a business plan at the beginning of their, the life of their business to, that would have classes cover the rent and all the other expenses and of course pay the teachers who are who are teaching those classes but then they hit the five-year mark and the rent's going to go up and hopefully the business has been growing enough that and then and perhaps they've been projecting in a conservative way they can meet that first five-year bump in their rental increase but we're also seeing in many markets at the 10-year mark some studios are not able to take that additional rent increase. And we're, we're starting to see in some of the more mature markets, some of these studios are starting to close or the owners are just unwilling or unprepared or just burnt out to, to try and step up some other things to keep that business going. And then we're seeing some of the bigger studios, even in New York, closing down at the 15-year mark. Um, in many cases, it comes down to rent. So I, I think it's helpful for teachers to understand that there are some really strong outside forces putting a lot of pressure on the ability for studios to even stay open. And this, this is a place where there is some difference between the more rural markets and the, and the urban markets, because definitely the cost of commercial real estate is going up faster in urban areas than it is in ur- rural areas. Um, rural yoga studios have more of like an attract problem of getting enough people in the door. And um, the other thing is that I think, you know, in prior to turning on the record button, you and I talked about this switch to the unlimited model. And that's something that the, you know, that all, all of the yoga studios may not have been taking into consideration within their, their initial business plans. Right. So initially, that was unheard of. And I I do actually know where that suggestion came from, but that's probably an offline conversation. But it used to be everybody was either paying for a drop-in 
or a class pass where maybe you would get a little discount if you committed to coming 10 times a month or something like that. But then when the unlimited model came into effect, you know, basically the real price of classes dropped down. And so it, it means that the studio needs to put more and more and more people on those unlimited passes in order to make the same income that they might have if they were still just doing drop-ins or class passes. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know what else to say about that, really, well, except that it's putting pressure on the studio's ability to pay teachers in a direct correlation to who's showing up in the classroom. And I think it came from, I mean, I don't know any, any like gossip or anything that, um, <laughs> or any names <laughs> or anything, but I think it, it seems from what I can see in, in my hometown, it came from the studios wanting to pressure students to commit to just their studio. So it's about, it was about competition. And if you're paying a monthly fee to one studio for an unlimited amount, you're going to be much less likely to drop into a class at a different studio. This is, this is definitely one of the factors. And I think to that extent, it has worked. It used to be that if a teacher stopped teaching at one studio and went to another, they, they did take their students with them to some extent. And so we're not seeing that anymore, but the the business model that that business model in particular always makes me feel a little uncomfortable because it only really works when people don't actually take advantage of it. Right when a when a good number of the people are not using it. I know, and that's and true. that just feels that just doesn't feel good to me. Um, but it's the gym business model, though, right? it is it is the gym business model. The membership fee is so low, but most people don't use it. Yeah, it's it's exactly that. And and I just feel I just feel kind of yucky about that. But unfortunately, once once one studio in your market does that, they all have to fall into place. So taking it back to the rural studios, they might get lucky because they don't have another studio within a, a close mile radius to put that pressure on them. But we're actually talking about my second um, factor that I, I think people should be really aware of is that in a lot of places around the country, and maybe this is true overseas as well, but the market is saturated. And I know that we like to talk about, you know, operating from an abundance mindset and, and keeping your eye on your own paper to some extent, but we also can't ignore simple supply and demand concepts either. And um, when there's a lot of competition in the marketplace, it has the effect of pushing the price down for the consumer. So it's great if you're a person who just loves yoga and wants to take a lot of classes. But if you're a teacher in the marketplace trying to deliver the service, it means that there's a lot of downward pressure on what we can take home each month. And uh, the studios are feeling that crunch. And unfortunately, with rent also going up, and the inability to pass that that cost onto the the clients, then what we're seeing is that yoga studio or yoga teacher income is has not been keeping pace with other market forces. So, so basically, yeah. what we're you know what we're just talking about is that the studio business model 
is under a lot of pressure right now. And that's an important thing to know if you want to get hired by a yoga studio. If you have decided a yoga studio is where I want to teach, or at least one of the places I want to teach, that's an important piece of context to, to have in the background. What else, what else should people know and be thinking about? Well, that, that's the biggest one. And, you know, it just, it goes into, it's going to feed into how you put yourself out there, how, how you factor which studios you want to work at. And, you know, for the, for anybody who happens to own a studio, who's listening to this, the way that studios are going to survive in the marketplace that's, that's crowded is to niche down a little bit or differentiate. And the way that they can do that is there's myriad ways they can do that. One is, you know, hewing to a lineage or particular style of yoga, targeting a specific demographic. Maybe it's um, yoga for empty nesters, or I know a lot of people out there have studios targeting uh, people who are in the in the fertile period of their life, you know, early family, young families and, and that kind of thing. So prenatal and kids yoga and stuff like that. There's a studio in my area that is trying to be ex- really welcoming to LGBTQT community and people of color and so forth. So there's, there's lots of ways you can slice and dice the pie to carve out a niche that you really go after and then you're not so distracted by what everybody else is doing. And then you can stay in that more abundance mindset because you've really got your eye on a really specific marketplace and you just devote all of your attention and energy towards them. For teachers then, we need to do the same thing too. And we want to do that for our own sake. We really should get to know the kind of people that we want to work with, the kind of students that we want to teach, the kind of um, classes we want to teach, what kind of demographic. This helps us to understand and make decisions about trainings that we want to take so that we don't get caught up in, you know, shiny objects syndrome and start chasing after everything that, that drops in front of us. But it also helps us to identify the studios where we're going to be the most successful. So if you haven't done any work as a teacher to to identify your ideal student and what their lives are like and really profile them and get into their head. I highly recommend stopping everything that you're doing and, and really focus on that for a time. Because one of the things that I noticed on the other end of this conversation is receiving inquiries from teachers is you know, everybody's just like, oh yeah, I just want to teach and I can teach whatever. And and that didn't give me a lot of confidence that I was going to end up with a person in the right setting, that they would succeed and that the students would be the most happy. So um, this is an important thing that everybody needs to do, whether you're an owner and are trying to differentiate studio, differentiate your studio in the market or if you're a teacher. So I want to I want to tell a quick story from a completely different a completely different industry that speaks to that exactly. I think sometimes it's helpful to, to bring in, you know, perspective from what it's like from the other end. I was trying to hire a photographer and I had a whole, and I had put an inquiry out on Facebook saying, Hey, if anybody's a photographer, who you know, um, please send them my way. And I got all these inquiries and I would ask people, so what's your specialty? And they'd be like, Oh, I do everything. And I'd be like, <laughs> off my list. If you don't even know what your specialty is, I'm like not even going to 
because there were so many. I had like 30 people contacting me. How do I, how do I know where to even begin the conversation if you don't know what your specialty is? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and I also want to say in that same sort of vein that on this podcast, I am really interested in and planning to and have some people in the works for exploring different revenue models for yoga teachers that are not what everybody else is doing or what everybody else has been doing because with the explosion, I mean, when I looked at the Yoga Alliance registry just a few years ago, there were, you know, like 10,000 yoga teachers registered and now there's like 80,000 or some, I mean, that, like just over a few years, the last five or, or 10 years has just seen an exponential explosion of the number of yoga teachers out there. So we need to, you know, I, that's something that you were talking about is the saturation of teachers. And I want to just kind of put that out there that take, you know, be aware, keep an eye out for future podcasts that are going to address different ways that we as teachers can be more creative in how we, how we structure our business. Oh yeah. I, I was just listening to another podcast myself that was all about all the opportunity that's out there and available to not just yoga teachers, but anybody with an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I don't think we could live in a more entrepreneurial m mode in history. <laughs> I think Which the is sky really is really the limit. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that's, that can be very exciting. It can be intimidating too, for sure. Um, and the, you know, so with that in mind, sometimes it can, there can be some pressure that we have to be entrepreneurial and that we have to like be entrepreneurial right now or we'll miss the boat. And I don't think that's true. I do believe that, especially if you've only had a 200 hour teacher training, that there is some time to kind of put your head down and just get experience. And so in some, in some ways, like the information in the rest of this podcast is going to be relevant to everybody at every stage of their business. But I, I also want to say it's okay if for right now you just want to teach two classes at a yoga studio because you do need, you know, it is, it's not too late. <laughs> it's, you yeah. know, you don't have to rush beyond what you're actually ready for. You don't have to come up with your niche today if you're not ready you can just teach two general classes or one general class or five and, and kind of find your feet if that's where you're at. Yeah, I agree. And, and one of the things you can do when you're getting your feet wet like that is just pay attention, keep your mind open for what are the things that you are naturally drawn to and what are the things that you're like, you know what? No, I don't want to deal with people like this. And just yes. the sooner you get a sense of that, the the better for you and you're going to feel much better showing up and you're also going to end up not wasting your time. I wasted so much of my time going down rabbit holes that seemed interesting at the time and I would and then a couple of years into it I'd be like, "Ah, eh, this isn't really my bag." Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, it's in some ways you have to do the things you don't want to do so that you identify them and can pivot away from them and other times if I'd actually listen to myself more, I would have noticed some resistance 
mm. um, early on. And so just, just kind of try to stay open in these first few years of teaching and, and, and notice what lights you up and what makes you feel not so great. And don't be, a, don't be, don't feel bad rather about the things that you don't like to do. I, I, I originally many years ago, just, just cause I wanted to get in the door. I, I agreed to teach family yoga and I oh, dread no. <laughs> it. I, at the time I didn't have a kid yet. I have a nine-year-old now, but at the time I had no children and I didn't grow up with brothers and sisters or, and my cousins lived far away. So I was, I'm a, I'm a really solid only child. And, but I just was like, yeah, I'll teach anything. <laughs> and I hated that class. I hated it. I dreaded it every Saturday. And, and I probably could do a better job with it now that I've had a child and I've been around children more, but it was, it was just, it was, it was the last thing I wanted to do. And I, I gave it almost a year and I was the worst family yoga teacher there ever was. Oh my God. <laughs> that is so funny because I'm going to be really honest here. I have two kids and I love my kids, but every time I hear about the concept of family yoga, like, like I get the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. I don't even want to take it. <laughs> I know that there are some people who actually love it and it's, it's, yeah. it's their, it's their zone of genius. So yeah. I'm really happy for them. <laughs> and a similar story about prenatal. I got really into prenatal for a while and I was actually good at it. I actually really liked teaching the class, but I realized at some point that to really be a star prenatal yoga teacher, it's helpful to kind of immerse yourself in the wider world of, of birthing and delivery and childbirth classes and doulas and all of those things. And I was not interested in that. And so as much as I really enjoyed spending time with the pregnant ladies, I, I, I kind of bowed out because I, I felt like there were other people who could show up even better for them. So totally. That, that's, that's a, a great <laughs> reminder. Will you, Jennifer, tell us, talk, talk a little bit about professionalism? Because I know that's something that you're really big on. Yeah. So <laughs> I think this is, this is sometimes an obvious, like, you know, really put your best foot forward. But in other cases, I know, and I was there too, that people want to teach yoga because they want to leave the stuffy corporate way of operating. And we would rather make interpersonal connections and we would rather, um, you know, feel each other out in different sorts of ways before we decide we want to work somewhere or work with someone. But the reality is that the people on the other end of these inquiries for jobs are super busy and they're getting a lot of stuff thrown at them they're also the owner. So sometimes the owner does both and sometimes they have staff. These people are getting inundated with stuff. And the more professional you can be, the more you're going to get noticed. And, and for the person on the receiving end, it's almost unconscious. You've got one person who's like, hey, I think you're great. And I really I just got out of my training and I really love what you're doing. And can I work there? Versus you know, somebody who's done a lot of research, has maybe even been to some classes, knows exactly what they want, where they might fit in, and they present a really polished resume, and you get both of them in your inbox at the same time, even if the first person who's a little 
a little more fluid and a little more organic in their approach might actually be more qualified, but the more professional person is going to feel like the path to least resistance. I don't have to send four or five more emails to get the information that I need to make a decision about this from the person who sent the resume and a more polished presentation. So that's, that's one reason. Another thing is that you want to show the hiring manager or the studio owner that you're going to show up once you're an employee in a really professional way. So, you know, we do care about whether or not the person is going to be really helpful and proactive about getting their subs or, you know, not flaky <laughs> and showing up and being present and not showing up five minutes right before the class starts. So the first impression also gives an impression about how you're going to be as a teacher at that space too. So you want to give them as much confidence as you can at the very beginning of that relationship. That makes sense. What about the thought process? Can you walk us through that as, you know, as, as a hiring manager or an owner, as you receive an inquiry, what, what do they think about? Yeah. So the, I think there are a couple of different questions that, that go through. This is, and this I developed when I was working as a consultant for my friend's studio because I was getting a lot of emails because we would put the word out, hey, we're a new studio and we're hiring. Send me your information and your resume. And so I was getting a ton. And so I started to see patterns. And I realized that my first question right off the bat was, is this person a good fit for what we're trying to create here? And fit comes back to this question about how the studio is differentiating the kind of yoga that they're offering, whether it's lineage-based or style or what their target demographic is. And fit is probably the number one question that I want to get answered before I move on to any other stuff. Because if I have to backtrack and say, oh, you know what? I didn't realize this is what you teach. I don't think this is a good fit. That's a really awkward conversation. Nobody feels good, but it also everybody's been wasting their time. So how can you help the person on the other end know that you're a good fit for that space? And I have a few tips to, to push that conversation forward a little more quickly. And the first one is that you really do need to do your homework about the studio that you're applying to. And my first recommendation is to, especially if you're in a big market, kind of get the map, get a map out, find yourself. Maybe you're at home most of the time and that's your starting point for your day. Or if you have an office that you go to and you teach part-time, maybe there's another um, point of reference for you. But find out what your zone of comfort is in terms of how far you're willing to drive and commute to teaching jobs. And then Google all of the studios in that zone of comfort. <laughs> That's what I call it because I'm not willing to drive anywhere. Um, so you've got your zone of comfort, all the studios in there, and then go through their websites as a first pass and figure out which ones seem like a good fit for you. You want to look at their about page and their mission statement. You want to look at the names of their classes and the descriptions of their classes. You want to see where all the other teachers have trained and what their approach is. Even, even the pictures that they choose to put on their website are going to tell you a little bit 
about who they're targeting, right? If it's like glowy, tan, sweaty people, that's really different if your interest is um, yoga for 50 plus. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or pregnant people. (laughs) So, uh, you know, you, you want it. This is just a first pass, right? And every now and then you might be in a niche that is complementary to something. So make a note of that too. And then I want you to go take classes at the studios that you think are the closest fit based on what you've done your research on. That is so important. And, and I cannot believe that I honestly can't believe that people apply for studios that they've never taken a class at, but I know it happens. Oh, not only does it happen there, but people will apply to teacher trainings having never taken classes at the studio. So, um, yeah, we need to practice in the spaces that we want to spend time in. And when you do that, you're going to, you're going to take classes with, with different teachers because you may, you may just naturally not resonate with someone, but there might be somebody else that you like. But as many teachers as you can take classes with. If you can find out who the hiring manager is, sometimes it's the owner, sometimes it's somebody else, take their classes too, but not just their class. Right. Just Get a feel for the space and, and look around too. Do I see my people in this room with me? Do I feel like this is a person, this teacher is somebody that I would see as a colleague and a friend and someone I would like to collaborate with? You want to see if you're going to plug into this community and it's going to feel natural and a good fit for you. That way, when you reach out to the person that's hiring, you have a real genuine connection to the space and what comes out of you is going to come out of your mouth a lot easier because you're going to mean it. And, um, so I would say first, before you even email the person, if you can take a class, if you can, yeah. yeah, take their class. And then after you've gone to their class a few times, then you go up to them after class and go, hi, my name's Jen. I've been coming to classes here for a couple of weeks and I really love what you're doing here. I think, I think the atmosphere is great. I really love the approach to your teaching and, and how you've assembled such a really great group of teachers. I happen to be a teacher too, and I would really welcome an opportunity to apply to teach here. How do I do that? And then you give them an opportunity to tell you what their process is right? So they might be giving you an email or a link to an application or, or something, but that way they know that you're coming. And then when you email them or fill out the application, you're like, like, Hey, remember me? (laughs) You know what I would say is that the same thing holds true. Even if this is the studio you trained at, if you Uh haven't been taking classes with, you know, who the hiring manager is, you haven't been taking their classes start going to their classes if you at all can. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a story about the first studio job I got. It was at the studio that I trained at. And the first time I asked for a class, I was turned down. It's okay. I mean, it's, this is, this is how it goes. And so what I did was at that time, this was a lot more common and maybe a bit easier but there, it still might spark an idea for something similar is I, w- I was like, Oh, well, I'm not going to be, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be um, turned away that quickly. And so I was like, Hey, can I assist your next workshop? And she's like, okay. And so I showed up at her workshop and I assisted and I did, 
yes, I did a good job because like, you know, within a month she offered me a class. So it was like, I I chose to be more visible to her in a way where she could see my dedication and see my skill set. So if there's any way, like sometimes it's, it's just subbing. Sometimes it's offering Mm -hmm. to sub or, or being, you know, making yourself willing and available to sub especially if you, if you can do that last minute, you know, sometimes studios will get into a, into like a a bind or a pinch. Mm. So if you've been turned down by a studio or, you know, you know that it's super competitive, if you can get into a conversation with that hiring manager and just be like, Hey, you know, or like, say you've been turned down, you can say, Hey, listen, I totally respect that. I understand that. And I want, here's my info. If you ever get into a bind with needing a teacher for a class, I will do my absolute best to be available. That, that can like help you stand out also. Yeah, totally. In fact, people should realize that usually the first entry point into a studio teaching job is the sub list you know, because you might be asking to teach and they just don't have any time available on the schedule. And if you've managed to get on the sub list, you should sub as much as you can. Because what will happen is that some of those students will start asking, hey, when are you teaching? And then they'll start asking for your classes and then then you might be able to get in that way too. Yeah, good point. So that answers the question about fit, you know, and and I can't, you know, I've already told you my prenatal story. I also ended up accidentally at a hot yoga studio and I'm not a hot yoga teacher. Um, You know, it's getting fit is, or getting the fit right is much more important for everybody in the, in the relationship, not just for the studio, not you know, not just for you. Yeah. And this is a place where, again, there, there may be some variation with a more rural area. If there's only one yoga studio in town, you may not have that converse, you know, you you may not be able to choose a studio that has a good fit. A lot of times a more rural rural studio is going to offer more of a variety of classes though. So at least you want to make sure that you feel that the studio is being run with integrity and that the, you know, that the people like that you can trust them. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, if you are in a place where you only have one studio and, and they're just really not teaching the kind of thing that, that works for you, then, then you've got to fall back onto some of those creative alternative options. Um, you know, studios aren't the only place to teach. Totally. So. So what's the next thing that you ask yourself as a hiring manager? Yeah, so once they seem like a good fit, the next logical question is, well, are they qualified to teach this thing that they say they want to teach? And there's two components to that. There's the, are they qualified in terms of their education and their training background, but also do they have enough experience? I'll tackle the second one first because I think it's it's pretty it's a pretty easy one to get through. And here's the deal. Some studios will differentiate on the expertise of their teachers. That's true of the studio where I work at now is a, is a national chain that just bought out the local studio where I work and not in my market, but in some other of their more competitive markets, 
they require that all of their teachers be trained at the, at least the 500 hour level. So they have a pretty high bar for who they'll even full, who they'll even talk to. Others might be a couple of years, and then I have known studios who will hire brand new teachers. So you want to f- feel that out as soon as you can in that conversation. So if you find out that the studio is just wants more experienced people, try not to take that personally. It just you know that's just something that you want to work towards, and then you find you know an- another space where where you can build up some of your chops. My first year of teaching, I taught a Monday night class in my office. And I also taught a Wednesday night class at the climbing gym where I used to go climbing. Neither of those jobs were paid, <laughs> but I was, I was getting a tremendous amount of experience. So um, then by the time I was ready, I went back to my home studio and I said, I'm ready. And they were like, okay, here's, 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 I mean, it was not the most lucrative class on the schedule by any stretch, but it was an, it was a foot in the door. So, and meanwhile, I didn't, I didn't begrudge them by not hiring me right away. I still took classes at that studio. I was like, I'm going to keep learning and keep growing. And I'm going to come back to you when we're both ready for that. Right. I will say that I've had conversations with studio owners who have tried hiring brand new teachers. And from that experience have said, I don't do it anymore because it doesn't go well. Yeah. Part of yeah. We, it does depend on your market because some markets have a higher level of expectations. Like the students are pretty sophisticated. The ones who mm. go to yoga studios are pretty sophisticated and they can be pretty picky. And, you know, they will tell the management in no uncertain terms when somebody's not meeting their standards. So it's actually a much gentler entry into teaching if you teach people who are less experienced in yoga, because a lot of times if you're teaching in a studio and you're a brand new teacher, your students have been practicing longer than you. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, if you look at the 2016 Yoga in America survey, which Yoga Alliance and Yoga Journal compiled together, over 60% of yoga teachers have been practicing less than five years. What? (laughs) I know. That's a crazy number, but I have students that have been practicing with me longer than that. And so oh, yeah. I do too. So, Absolutely. And those are the people that you describe who, when somebody subs my class and they're a little greener than me, they'll say, Oh, Jen, that person's not ready. <laughs> right. And and I'm like, but that person's been teaching six years. <laughs> so, you know, but you're right. At, at, at a church or at an office or, you know, someplace where people have not, are beginners, then they will, they'll see you as the expert and they will be like, oh my God, that was amazing. This is changing my life. You know, the exact same class, the exact same. Yeah, absolutely. So don't be ashamed. You just go out and you, you put in the work, you just put in the work and you'll be ready at some point in the future to, to step in those jobs that require more experience. Um, but let's talk about the education component. Um, you, if you are teaching a specialty demographic or a specialty class, you need to have some training and experience in teaching that demographic. So if, you're, if you want to be a restorative yoga teacher, you need to have some restorative yoga training. If you want to um, teach prenatal, you need to have some experience with pregnant women. And so this is an opportunity when you go back and you assess 
the kinds of people that you want to be working on and the kind of or working with and the kinds of subjects you want to be teaching. If if you're looking at your experience and your educational background and you don't have those things, then that's that's where you need to go next is to get that training. So don't try to sneak in <laughs> and and say, oh, I'm really interested in this, but you have no background because then everybody um, ends up unhappy when that doesn't go as well as it could. I do want to speak to a trend that I see around where people are less and less likely to be sharing in their public bios where they've trained. And I, I get that. I know that a lot of people who read those things don't even know who half of our teachers are anyway, so they don't care. I had a, I had a copywriter actually critique my bio for me, and she was like, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> Right. Why is that on here? And the studio managers <laughs> will probably know. They the will know. Owners or the gym managers won't. No, but the studio owners will know, and they will care. And if you happen to teach at a place, or happen to have studied at a place where it's not a it's not a famous teacher, then do that person a favor and put a link to that school's website so the person who's reading your information can follow it and, and get a sense of what you've learned from that. Don't, don't just say, oh, I've got Yoga Alliance stamp and that's enough because it isn't. We all know that the dirty secret is that not all, of, not all trainings are nothing. the same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it means basically nothing. Where you trained is everything. Right. Yeah, this, is, this is specifically in the studio context and not in like the wider context for a different type of class, like a gym or, or whatever. Right. Absolutely. A rec center, someplace like that. They're not going to care. They're not even, they might not even care about yoga Alliance, to be honest. And um, if you're out there building your own classes and you're marketing directly to students, they're not going to care either. So this is really to prove to a yoga studio that you've, you've gone through a good program. Now I, I will say that I'm aware because I've had enough people come through 200 hour with me who did a 200 hour that they realized either partway through or after the fact that it wasn't really up to a high standard. And then they go and do another 200 hour again. I want to suggest that if you find yourself in a situation where you're feeling embarrassed or reluctant, if you've gotten wind that the program that you went through isn't as respected, we have a couple of those in my community you and you really want to be a professional yoga teacher and, and put yourself out there in that way, you, you're going to have to go back and remediate that somehow. And maybe that's another 200 hour training, or maybe that's, you know, accelerating your path towards a 300 hour so that you can fill in some of those gaps because people in your community will know if you've gone through one of those programs that isn't quite up up to the quality that they're looking for. Another another option that's less well known at this time, but I think is more and more people are offering like structured mentorships with senior teachers. Yes, absolutely. If you can find one of those, that's a great way to overcome not so great training. It's, yeah. it's I think it's the ideal way because you that teacher 
is focused on you and they can actually figure out where your gaps are and help fill them in the most efficient way possible. Even though hour for hour, it's gonna seem more expensive. I think you're gonna get more bang for your buck doing it that way. You're gonna get more transmission. You're gonna get more clarity. You're, you're gonna understand where your gaps are because every teacher training has gaps. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> and so even the good ones will have some gaps. Yeah. Like they'll just have a focus, right? And doing a one-on-one, doing a like a mentorship that's one-to-one, the your your mentor is going to focus on the things that you A need and B are passionate about and want to focus on. Oh, yeah. That's that's such a good idea. Maybe I need a new offering. <laughs> <laughs> totally, you do. Absolutely. I will say on similar vein. Um, I do know because I've talked to teachers who confess this to me that they're reluctant to put their local studio training program because they didn't train with a famous teacher. And I, I just want to say that, you know, what did you say, Meadow? There's like 80,000 teachers now. And they're only what, like I a dozen? More. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't have a great brain for numbers, so that could be off. But it, what I did notice was like an, an exponential growth. Yeah. So um, we'll just say there are a lot of yoga teachers out there. They're on what, like a dozen? Maybe that's generous, quote unquote, famous teachers. <laughs> the chances of those 12 or so people training all of these masses is so low. Studio owners are not looking for you to have studied with the famous teachers of the land. And being famous doesn't actually make you any better than the really great non-famous teachers. That's that's so (laughs) true. And if, if we really want to get into it, you know, cause I have some friends that have gone to some of these really expensive intensive programs where there's like a hundred people there. The first thing they do on the first day is they break you down into smaller groups and you're really getting most of your instruction from one of their senior assistants. Now, those senior assistants are good. They're probably a trainer in their own community, but they don't have the name recognition of the people whose name is on the certificate. But they, that's kind of another little secret in the industry is if you've got the name brand person on your certificate, there's a good chance that you they might not even know you if they walk past you on the street. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Can't. They're they're trying to you know they're trying to teach so many that it's it's going to be nearly impossible for them to have very much one to one with you. Yeah. So if you've trained with a really solid person in your community, own that because we know that you've gotten a lot more interpersonal connection with those teachers. So don't be ashamed <laughs> about where you trained. Good. So I think there's one more piece of the thought process that that studio owners and managers go through. Yeah. So this may not come up in the first conversation, but you want to have this ready because this is where you end up in a lot of tedious back and forth that can kind of peter the relationship out a little bit, even when there's a lot of enthusiasm going into it. And that is know when you're available (laughs) to teach. Have that information ready. And that means looking at your own schedule. What I do is I actually will go onto Google because it has that feature where you can 
plug in different times of day and it will tell you how long it takes you to get to a certain location. And that'll give you a ballpark figure about what your commuting time will be at certain times of the day. And then I will even let that be a factor in whether or not I can teach a class. Because if it's in the middle of a DC rush hour and I got to be somewhere that's in a normal day, like 20 minutes away, I'm looking at almost an hour in a rush hour. So that's crazy and I won't do it. But I will say that a lot of teachers apparently don't know what a typical yoga studio schedule looks like. And I and this was one of the things when I was helping my friend open her space that really flummoxed me. <laughs> and I would just sit there and I would go, what? This is crazy. And then I realized it was something that I knew as an insider that, that maybe isn't as apparent to people on the outside who haven't been doing this for a while. That is that there are certain times of day when yoga classes will work and there are certain times of day when they won't. And the peak time is going to be in the evening when all the other office people get off work. And so to the best that you can be available in the evening, the better your shot at getting on a schedule. Another peak time is Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings. The afternoons on the weekends are usually reserved for teacher trainings and workshops and guest teachers and so forth. As a studio gets a little bigger, you'll start to see them adding on very early morning classes for the people who want to get their yoga in before they go to work. And depending on the location, sometimes lunch yoga classes work really well. I've been teaching lunch yoga classes for 10 years, but I'm in a multi-use urban area where I've got people who are at work during the day. There's a lot of restaurants and retail. So I've got people with different kinds of schedules. I've got people who work from home who are nearby. And then I've got empty nesters who can do whatever they want. And that's how I can fill a lunch yoga class in that location. I've tried to teach a lunch yoga class two miles down the road in a more residential neighborhood and no one's home during the day and the class didn't go. Right. Um, so, so I think that speaks to know your area because yeah. it's also going to be different if you live in a, in an area with a lot of retirees, mm-hmm. they tend to like, like a mid morning yoga mm-hmm. class, like 9am, maybe 10. Yep. Um, absolutely. So, so yeah, this is, and, this is like, you know, location specific. Yeah. And so you want to look, you know, you want to look at the schedule that they already have there and look at it in a zoomed out frame of mind rather than each particular day, because there are just because something's not on the schedule doesn't mean that it's available, but it also doesn't mean they don't wish somebody was in that spot, but you're just kind of looking broad strokes where, where's the concentration of classes at this space. I, what, what made me laugh when I was helping my friend open her studios, I would get a lot of people who I think were trying to, to switch out of day jobs, but wanted to teach yoga, but still in the nine to five time frame. And I would get, I would ask them, okay, so when are you available? And they would say, oh, you know, from like uh, 1130 to two or three. And then I got to go pick up my kid. And I have a kid, I completely sympathize, but that after lunch time frame in most places is dead. <laughs> it's just nobody available to take a yoga class. So you've got to be realistic about when classes are and, and what's going to be expected of you and when you're going to show up. You know, um, that really speaks to another challenge with um, once you do get hired at a yoga studio, a lot of times you'll get offered like 
the worst, hardest time slot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like you're a brand new teacher, maybe you're a brand new teacher, or you're just new to that studio and that community. And you're trying to, you are trying to build that 230 time slot. And it's like impossible. Yeah. Um, you know, you might also kind of consider if you do get a job offer, is it something that's worth investing in? Mm-hmm. You know, are you paying for childcare for somebody to go pick up your kid at school so that you can teach a class where two people are showing up? Mm-hmm. Or is that, you know, really likely going to be the case? I'm not saying that there's anything specific to do about that. I just like to give people a real perspective of the situation that teaching at a yoga studio is not necessarily kind of what you might envision. It, it can be really, really hard, uh, especially at first. Oh, yeah. I just recently dropped a class. And uh, and this was a class I've been teaching for 10 years. So I'm feeling a little emotional about it. <laughs> but part of it was that I needed to free up some, some time during the day because I'm working on some other projects. But part of it was that because I have a, an elementary school age child, anytime she gets sick, and she was just sick like a couple weeks ago, you know, stomach bugs go around. I couldn't always get a sub and it, it started to really weigh on me that, you know, I was having to scramble around to find somebody to watch a sick kid, which is what no babysitter wants to do and, and then still show up and not cancel the class. So, you know, these are things that it, everybody's got their own personal calculus that they have to kind of work through to figure out what's going to work for them. Yeah, Absolutely. So, and I kept my Friday class because my husband works from home on Fridays because he has a flex time. So I don't have to worry about it if my child is sick on Fridays. If you are a parent of, you know, a young child and a yoga teacher, it definitely adds another layer of complexity to, to the whole situation. So Jennifer, talk to us really briefly in broad strokes about the cover letter, resume, and references, that kind of uh, professional piece of the hiring process? Yeah, so this is going to be a little disappointing for some people, especially those who are trying to escape the stuffy corporate environment. But everything that you've ever heard about cover letter, resume, references, all apply here. You need to have all of that stuff um, professionally edited, maybe not professionally, but you know, have somebody look at it for you. You need to have it nicely formatted. You need to make sure your spelling is is on point and present your best foot forward. Everything that is this is not fun, not even for me, but uh, it's important to to put all of these professional pieces together, just That's like you funny. would. I actually think it's really fun. Um, <laughs> So everybody send them to Meadow to do. (laughs) And I charge. (laughs) But, you know, anything that you see on the internet about doing, doing, you know, how to do a resume, that applies in this case too. Um, But we will, we will put some more specifics in a download that you can, you can grab off the show notes too. Yeah. And I will totally, if somebody wants me to coach them on that side, I think it's awesome. I, I think it's would be totally my pleasure to do that if you wanted to hire me to coach you on your yoga resume. There you go. I would your cover letter and, <laughs> and you know the ways to to get good references. 
Yeah. The, um, the one thing that I would say, <laughs> the one little detail that I've never seen written down anywhere, but I, it was driving me nuts when I was collecting so many all at once. Don't name your file name, resume.doc. No, 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 no. I had like a folder full of resume.doc and I was like, this is not happening. (laughs) So, okay. That's a really good point. That's awesome. I don't know if I would have picked up on that or not. So I appreciate hearing that. I know that I (laughs) always put my name. I mean, because I know that for myself, when I just in my own organizational system, naming is super important because these days we do searches mm-hmm. search for things. So it's got to be intuitive. It's yeah. got to be what you would search for. Yep. <laughs> so like, like Jen was saying, the details on how to do this, you know, other than having somebody walk you through it, we are putting together a download that you can have access to by going to the show notes. So I hope that you'll do that. And the inspired action that we want to invite you to take for this episode is to either update your yoga resume if you haven't looked at it in a while or create one because you never know, even if you're not actively job seeking right now, you never know when an opportunity might come up that just is super exciting and you might be in a crunch time. You know, you want to have that ready to just customize and personalize and not have to do hours and hours of work on it. You want to have it really solid and waiting in case an opportunity comes your way. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I was looking at reaching out to somebody recently and the whole invitation was send me a resume and I was like, Oh, I got to do that. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's it. See, And that, that goes for all of you, no matter how experienced you are. Yeah, absolutely. Get, you know, make sure that resume is on point. Mm-hmm. So to kind of um, not quite wrap things up, because we're going to take questions, we're going to address some questions that we got at the end, but to, to bring this all together, talk us through briefly how the process of getting hired at a yoga studio usually works in, in broad strokes. Yeah, so you're going to make an inquiry, and there's going to be a little back and forth, um, you know, to ascertain fit and experience and, and so forth. You're probably going to be invited to audition in some kind of way, and every studio does this differently. I've seen, I've seen mass auditions where a whole bunch of people show up on one day, and they audition a bunch of people all at once. I've myself participated in a very strange round robin where three of us taught one class. That sounds awful. <laughs> it was the worst. <laughs> it was the worst. <laughs> um, but, you know, to my credit, if you can handle that, that says a lot about you. <laughs> yes. Or if you're already teaching, this is something that's happened with me recently. Somebody actually just came to a class that I'm already teaching um, to check me out rather than try to go through the rigmarole of trying to get on their schedule. So that might be something as well if you're already teaching somewhere. And I know when my friend was opening her studio, um, she didn't have a place for people to do auditions yet. So she was trying to go around and take classes with people where they were already teaching. Now, of course, if you're not already teaching, you may have to wait to get into a brand new studio once they're up and running so you can audition in their space. But expect 
some kind of demonstration that you can actually do what you've said you can do through all this correspondence. Jen, I have to tell a story here <laughs> that's <laughs> related. Make sure if somebody comes to demo your class, if you have any control, make sure you're teaching the style of yoga that you are comfortable teaching. When so there was a, a time when a woman was opening a new studio. So she came, she wanted to come check out one of my classes. And I, the only class that she could make was a class I was subbing and it was in a style that I didn't usually teach. And she actually left partway through. Oh no. And she like, I think I called her to get her feedback and she was like, no. And she told me why she was very straightforward. She was very blunt with me. And I was like, wow, oh my God, that was a huge challenge to my ego. Mm. Um, and you know, the cool thing is that, and, and I, I, so I shared with her, I was like, that's not a style that I usually teach. I, you know, I really respect and appreciate your feedback. And you know, this is, this is kind of the situation. And she was like, well, do you want another chance? And I was like, you know what? No, actually I'm going to take this as, I'm I'm just going to like, take this as a lesson Mm. and, and we'll like, maybe in the future, I'll reach out to you again. She's like, okay, cool. And I did end up teaching at her studio later. And I, I did, um, she's actually a friend now and mentor Mm. and, you know, like we work together sometimes. Um, so I think my point with this, you know, beyond just like, try to make sure that you're teaching a style that, that you, that you actually are good at teaching is that a no isn't always a permanent no. Like if you handle a no gracefully, that can lead to yeses later down the line. Mm. Oh, that's such a good point because, you know, my mind, as you were telling the story, I was thinking, oh, this is a lesson in how you know when something's actually not a good fit for you. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, that situation could have gone the other way where that person just made a judgment about you and, and closed the door. And then, you know, okay, that might've been a situation where, um, down the road, if I was teaching there, I might have some interpersonal conflict with that person's management style. Um, right. Well, the, but you got lucky. <laughs> well, you know, the good thing is that this is a person with a lot of integrity and she was really mm. honest with me with her feedback and it was helpful. It, I, I learned from her feedback. It made me a better teacher. Oh, that's and, so good. And, you know, I think that the way, like being some receiving feedback receiving like constructive feedback is a rare skill. There are, yeah. It's not something that we're taught very explicitly. It's not something that's usually, I think, addressed in teacher training, although maybe sometimes implicitly, and I think it would be cool to do that more explicitly. But it is, it's, it's not a skill that I personally came at naturally is I I actually have developed it in reaction to my my upbringing was always to be defensive and to to posture as if I was right and you know know it all so it's been through being exposed to first yoga philosophy and then other related uh you know ways of thinking 
that have over time, I think like just knowing that this is what I was like and that it was not functional forced me to work on that and to, to work on like, okay, notice, oh, I'm receiving feedback right now. A, B, mm. this is not positive feedback. C, okay, that means you need to really relax into it and like really just don't, don't try to, don't try to justify, don't try to whatever first to see what you can receive from it. So I don't, I don't really know where I'm going with that other than even if it's not your, your natural instinct to receive feedback. Well, you can't, it is a skill you can learn. And in my experience, it's something that makes you really easy to work with. It's like, even in yoga studios, there is drama and there's like interpersonal (laughs) tension. Mm -hmm. If somebody sees that you receive feedback well, that can open doors because people with integrity, people like the the type of people that you want to work for, they are on the lookout for people who are not going to cause drama and who are going to be like contributors and receiving feedback is a skill that they're going to really value. Oh, this is, this is such a good point. In fact, just, I'm in the process of, of negotiating some details about a new class at a new space. And we got really enthusiastic about one day I thought was going to work on my schedule. And I had to go back to her and say, you know, I actually got this wrong. I'm not available like I thought I was. And I just really went out there out front and said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I know that this is the kind of thing that would be really annoying to you and your position. And and I know that it's hard for you to juggle all of the inquiries from different teachers. And she, her feedback to me was a lot of gratitude for just owning my mistake. And she said, just like you said, she can see that I'm easy to work with. So even when I did made a mistake, she appreciated that I could stand strong in that mistake and apologize for it. So, um, you know, we just want to put, we just want to put our best selves forward and, and about feedback, when you do that audition, you're going to probably get some feedback. And I've seen over the years, people take that really well and, and other people, not so much, you know, it's a shame because the people who didn't take feedback very well, even from people who we were going to hire, we just wanted them to know a few things about working in our space. They, they, they rejected that. And then they, they went on and didn't do well in other spaces either. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So basically just be the person that you would want to work with. Absolutely. That's a good way of thinking about it. And so finally, after you go through this process, if they, they want to bring you on board, there's a good chance, like I mentioned earlier, that they're going to want to put you on the sub list first. That could only be a logistic thing, or it could be that they want you to get a little more experience and maybe even see how their community reacts to you. Or they might, they might be able to put you on the schedule. And like Mado has said a couple of times, it's probably not going to be like the prime spot um, because there are definitely certain time slots on a schedule that is like, it's kind of like the moneymaker, <laughs> the, the moneymaker spot, you know, and so just, just be okay with that as long as it is meeting your personal calculus for what you can manage. And it might take a little while for classes to build and grow. And then sometimes you realize it's not working. And what I would encourage you to do if you are in a situation where something doesn't feel like it's growing, but you still like the space, have a really open dialogue with the manager and see if they've gotten feedback 
that could help you improve the situation, or maybe it's just the time slot and maybe they can find another space for you when something comes open. And so don't just write them off if it still feels like a good home. You just sometimes it takes a little while to land in the spots that work really best for you and for the people who are available to come to your class. So that's awesome. Such great advice, Jen. So, mm. so helpful. I've really, I feel like I've learned a lot in this <laughs> conversation. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I think that we want to, we were going to wrap up with some of the questions that we got on the yoga teacher Facebook, the yoga teacher resource Facebook group. Jen posted that she was going to address this topic and asked if there were any questions and she got quite a few. So she picked a few that, that she's going to answer. So do you want to start with the first one? Yeah. So I don't have the exact wording in front of me, but there were, there were two that I thought were interesting to chat a little bit about. The first one is some folks wanted some advice about how to negotiate their pay rate. And this is a really charged <laughs> topic, and it really comes back to the very beginning of our conversation where, we, where I was kind of laying out the challenges of the, the environment in which yoga studios operate. And the honest truth is that some studios just aren't pulling in the income to pay a lot for their teachers. And I've, I hear over and over again, oh, they just want to pay newbies because they can pay them really little so they can take all the money. <laughs> there might be studios out there like that, I'm sure. Um, but I think most studios are struggling to make ends meet. I know a lot of studio owners don't pay themselves. They just reinvest whatever comes in back into the business. And so I think the best way to go in a conver into a conversation about negotiating is to understand the marketplace as best as you can that the studio, that particular studio is working in. If they've got a lot of competition in the immediate area, or if they're in a, a high value neighborhood with, with probably high rents, their, their capacity to give you more is gonna be limited. Also know that if they have monthly unlimited pass plans and not all of their classes are packed, they're probably also not making a huge amount of money either. Um, so just kind of keep that in mind. And then at the end of the day, just like any of these negotiations, you have to know what feels right for you and, and be okay with walking away if, if you can't get that. Um, I will say that I'm just going to plant this seed and every, some people are going to find this controversial and, and other people maybe not so much. But I honestly think that to some extent, group, weekly group classes are not really a yoga teacher's bread and butter or their primary means of income. I've personally started to think of it as more a way of reaching more people and um, honing my skills and techniques, especially when I come back from trainings and stuff. I try to see how there's a mutual relationship with me and the students that come to my weekly classes rather than it just be transactional. And seek out other ways of building your income. So workshops are going to give you more income than group classes. You know, once you get to a certain level, and I think it should be up there, <laughs> let me just stress 
I don't think people who've only been teaching a couple of years should be teaching teacher training, but at some point down the road, you may get an opportunity to participate in or even lead a teacher training. Then you're going to have an opportunity to make a little bit more money than on a group class. So we need to kind of understand that the, the economy of group classes is not great right now for everybody making a ton of money teaching group classes. Right, especially the drop-in model and then especially, especially the class pass or yeah. the, yeah, the unlimited pass model. Yeah, it just, it doesn't, it seems like it would encourage commitment on the part of the students. But when you add to that Groupon and class pass and all these other schemes, we got people who can, in a market like DC, can go around and do a new student just super, super discounted pass one month at this studio, one month at that studio, one month at that studio. They can go a whole year and only pay like 20 bucks a month for classes. So wow. it's, it's well, not a good market. Studios in, in my town, uh, I don't think, <laughs> but they're getting, getting close. Yeah. So what's the, um, what's the other question that you wanted to address? So some people brought up the question about non-competes and some, and so for those of you less familiar, some studios, and there actually is a question about how legal this is, um, especially if the studios are paying people as independent contractors, but some studios will build in a non-compete clause into their contracts with teachers. And, and I've seen all different ways that this plays out. Um, some people, it's, it's really broad, and you, you basically can't teach anywhere. Another studio I know it was that they just didn't want you teaching at other studios in a certain radius of their studio, but you could teach everywhere else. This is pretty controversial. Generally speaking, I don't love it like anybody else because it feels a bit like a stick and getting people to behave in a certain way using punishments rather than rewards feels uncomfortable. But having been on the other side in the back office workings of a yoga studio, I also know the impact of what happens when you've got, you've got teachers teaching and you've, you've done a good job of curating the kinds of people that you bring into your space. And then another studio opens three or four blocks down the road and they hire half of your teachers. <laughs> and what happens is, you, you now have competition in your space, but you have competition for your demographic. So maybe you've done a good job niching down and then you've got this other entity going after the same niche, hiring the same teachers, your efforts to differentiate and then not have to worry about that so much, keep getting thwarted. And the impact of that is that everybody's attendance rates can go down. And, I've, and I have seen this happen. And it, it becomes a real struggle in many ways for both studios to stay in business. So to the extent that you can, I think, it's, I think that you have to look at how close these other studios are to one another for your own calculus. Are they targeting the same people? Are you seeing a lot of overlap um, of clientele? in these other spaces and then make a decision for yourself, whether it makes good business sense for everybody, because what happens if one of those studios goes out of business? Well, you're going to lose half your classes um, and the other studio is not going to be able to hire you on for more because they've got all the other teachers teaching there too. So it's, 
I think generally it's a good idea to spread out a little bit as much as you can. Um, I just wish that we didn't have to codify that, that thinking into a contract. So what I'm kind of hearing the theme across both of these questions and really through this whole episode is to is is the perspective of the yoga studio and the the space you know that they are in a tight place they're working really hard just to survive and that as yoga teachers that our best bet may not be to try to negotiate with yoga studios or um, really worry too much you know like we can make a judicious decision about whether or not a particular studio is a good fit for us and whether or not we're willing to abide by their policies and their guidelines and their rate of pay, but that if we're not, rather than trying to change them or, you know, get something else out of them, that we start looking at other business models to support ourselves. Yeah. In fact, if you go into these relationships feeling like you're, you've given too much, it's, it's never going to go well. You're going to, that's going to sit in your valley and just kind of be there all the time. Every time you walk in the door, you're going to feel a little, eh. oh, and yeah. you don't want that. You don't want that. You don't want that energy going into, you want to, you want to go into these relationships with studios, um, enthusiastic about the opportunity to put your best self forward and to help each other co-create the programs that people want. And it's, yeah. it's really a partnership. And if you don't feel that enthusiasm, it's, it's not a good fit. Oh, and what a good point. That's, yeah, that's so important. That's not something I think that a lot of times we, as humans, we just, you know, we put ourselves in these situations that, that don't feel right because we think we don't have any other options. Yeah. But yeah. ultimately we're, we're, I don't, I believe you know, that what you're saying and what I also agree with is that if we are in a relationship with a studio or with anybody that that doesn't feel like it's in integrity, we're actually going to miss out on other opportunities that we would be more open to, we would be more aware of, we would be seeking out if we weren't spending all this energy feeling negative about this other situation. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned interpersonal drama at studios. I do think that the source of a lot of that comes from people feeling like they're not getting their needs met or they're not being appreciated in the way they would like to see. That breeds a kind of dissatisfaction that erupts into gossip and, and stuff like that. And, oh, yeah. you know, and feeling like somebody else's class is doing better than mine and all kinds of stuff like that. So, well, I think that's a good place to wrap things up mm -hmm. just because I have to run and go pick up my daughter from her preschool. <laughs> I'm be a little late as it is. This is, this was a really awesome conversation and uh, so many, so many more nuances than, you know, we were talking in the beginning before we hit record about how it's such a straightforward conversation. <laughs> it's, it's actually not, but that's okay. I think, you know, when you're really, um, when you're really, paying attention, almost nothing in this world is, is as straightforward as it might seem. True. So thank you again, 
um, for taking so much time and so much care with sharing your perspective and your knowledge and your experience with the community. Yeah, my pleasure. I love it. <laughs> we'll talk again soon. Yeah, take care. Bye. Since you're still here, thank you for listening the whole way through to that episode. I really enjoyed talking to Jennifer. I thought she was incredibly organized and knowledgeable and helpful. That conversation was definitely a lot longer than I thought it was going to be, but I hope you found it worthwhile. I'm definitely interested in your feedback. So whether you want to leave some stars and some written feedback on iTunes, that would be amazing. Or if you want to privately email me at helloyogateacher at gmail.com, I'm incredibly interested to use whatever feedback you give me to make this, to keep improving this podcast. I hope you're also interested in finding out more about Jennifer. And if you want to get in touch with her and check out her online trainings, go to sati.yoga. That's S-A-T-I dot Y-O-G-A, sati.yoga. Once you've created a draft or updated your resume like we invited you to do at the end of the podcast and this episode, please stop by the Yoga Teacher Resource Community online Facebook group. It's a private Facebook group. If you're not a member, go to teachingyoga.net and click, our, click the Join Our Community tab. I'll include links to all of these things, of course, in the show notes. Teachingyoga.net slash 004 is the easiest way to find it. Also want to let you know about some upcoming episodes, some of the topics that are coming up. I'm doing a show about websites, yoga teacher websites. Specifically, I'm tackling the question, do yoga teachers really need a website? And if so, what's the best way to approach that? And what features do they need on websites? Lots of other stuff. It's kind of a personal passion of mine. So I hope you'll join me for that one. Also had a wonderful conversation with Shannon Crow who is a Canadian yoga teacher who has a podcast of her own, huge inspiration for me. And we talk about how to succeed as a yoga teacher by focusing on cooperation instead of competition. So that is a really uplifting episode. I hope you listen to that one. Finally, I'm working on a solo show about one of the most common concerns that some of my newer yoga teachers have, which is about helping their students keep their wrists healthy in yoga classes. And there is so much to talk about with that. That's coming up also. So just a little hint of what to look forward to. I hope to see you, quote unquote, next week.